But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, we are thankful to be in the house of the Lord together. We're so blessed that we have this privilege And maybe more than ever, we understand this to be exactly that, a great privilege to gather together corporately and to sing your praises and to fellowship and, of course, to give attention to the reading and the teaching of your holy word. And Father, we ask that you would instruct us now in this passage of scripture that we've read in Galatians, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue working in each of our hearts Increasing our faith, helping us to rely on and trust in Jesus more and more every day as a result of the things that we learn from your word. So Lord, we commit this time to you. We look forward to the work you're going to do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. Go ahead and have a seat. And this morning's message is titled, Living in Step with the Gospel. Living in Step with the Gospel. Now, a number of years ago, Pepsi did this advertisement. Um, It was kind of a short film that they did starring a character named Uncle Drew. And Uncle Drew was played by Kyrie Irving, who is a really good guard in the NBA. So he's a basketball player. And what they did in this short little film is they had Kyrie Irving sit down with some makeup artists who made him look like he was really, really old. And they did a great job. And then he went out into New Jersey at night and uh, went to a basketball court, an outdoor basketball court, where a bunch of guys were playing a pickup game and there were all these other people who were watching the game. And uh, so they kind of organized the whole thing. But Kyrie shows up and he's sitting there watching his nephew, who's an actor, playing basketball. Well, another guy who's an actor takes a fall and he's injured. And they're kind of looking around on the court like, man, we need another guy to play. And so... Uh, his nephew says, well, my Uncle Drew can play. We could just have my Uncle Drew play. And all the guys are kind of skeptical, like, man, this guy's really, really old. You sure he can come in here and play? And well, whatever, we don't have another guy. Okay, so Uncle Drew gets on the court. 
And he begins playing, and he's terrible at first. I mean, he's like bent over, his back's hurting, he can't really move well, he's not agile, he's missing shots, uh, kicking the ball out of bounds and stuff, and people on the sidelines are kind of making fun of him. But as the game progresses, Uncle Drew's game progresses, and he starts getting better. And, of course, after a few minutes, he's just bawling out. I mean, he's dunking. He's just crossing people over, making these guys who are young and athletic fall on the ground and stuff. And the crowd goes nuts, and everybody is so blown away that this elderly man can play basketball at the level that he's playing. Now, of course, to uh, pull off this great deception, it required top makeup artists from Hollywood to make him look like something, namely an elderly person, that he actually, in fact, wasn't because he's a young man. Well, in ancient Greek theater, where makeup wasn't nearly as sophisticated or developed as it is today, they had a much simpler way of trying to fool the audience. The actors would come out, and whatever their character was, they would just hold up a mask in front of their faces. And they would go out, and they would do their whole theatrical performance with a mask in front of their face. Now, of course, nobody in the ancient Greek world was really believing that that person behind the little mask was actually the character, but it did help people to enter into the drama a little bit more fully. And the Greek word that would describe a person who was play-acting, a person who was walking around with a mask in front of themselves, in other words, a person pretending to be something that they were actually not, is the word that we get our English word hypocrisy from, or hypocrite. You'll notice that that's the exact word that the Apostle Paul uses in describing the Apostle Peter's actions in the church at Antioch. You see that in verse 13. And Paul's not happy about this. He's looking at Peter and he's saying, Peter, quit playing. Quit acting. This is not okay. Now verses 14, or 11 rather, through 14, kind of that first little paragraph there, are going to give us the situation that is going on here in Galatians chapter 2. It's a little bit of the context, a little bit of the backstory. Now, when Peter arrived in Antioch, which was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, um, he gets to this city, and this is a very diverse city. It's a very powerful Roman city. And when Peter gets there, the church at Antioch is this vibrant and diverse Christian community. Uh, this is a place where Jews and Gentiles, likely for the first time in human history, are actually intermingling as one body under God. They're eating meals together, they're doing life together, they're fellowshipping together, and for the first time, they're actually putting on full display for the world around them this new family of God that God is creating in and through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So this is what Peter sees when he gets to Antioch. In fact, it's Antioch where uh, followers of Jesus are first described as Christians. You see that in Acts 11.26. So when Peter gets there and he sees all this going on, what we read in the text is that he gladly entered into table fellowship with these non-Jews, with these Gentiles. So that meant that he was happy to sit down and eat together with these non-Jewish brothers and sisters. But a lot of commentators point out that this is probably also a reference to communion or the Lord's Supper. That Peter was glad to just enter into having communion with these new brothers and sisters that are Gentiles. Um, in the ancient church, when the church would celebrate the Lord's Supper, it was a thing that they would do on the back end of a larger meal. 
And of course, they got this from Jesus himself. When Jesus instituted communion on the night that he was betrayed, he instituted communion on the heels of the Passover meal that he ate with the disciples. And so that was the early church's practice. The whole church community would gather around and feast together and then receive the Lord's Supper. And it's, again, it's this beautiful picture in Antioch of the reality of what God is doing in the gospel that now we've, we've got one unified church, Jew and Gentile together. The church is reflecting, reflecting the unity of God's people. Now all of this makes sense to us if you were here last week. Because you'll remember that just last week we talked about how when Paul had gone to Jerusalem and he met with Peter and James and John, Peter and the other apostles agreed with Paul that Gentiles did not need to become Jewish in order to belong to the family of God. So this makes sense now that Peter's living this way. But all of a sudden, things take a turn. Enter stage left a group called by Paul here, the circumcision party. These are these same false teachers that we've been talking about in this series. These Jews who had claimed to convert to Christianity, but they were still holding on to the law of Moses. They were still holding on to their Jewishness and trying now to follow Jesus. And so this circumcision party shows up in Antioch and they actually ruin the party in Antioch because they come and they say that they're from James which means that they probably were alleging that, hey, we're here as official reps from the church in Jerusalem. We're here to kind of make sure things are kosher here in Antioch and get a handle on what's going on. We're from James. And what happens is when this circumcision party arrives in Antioch, all of the sudden, Peter changes course. And he withdraws himself from the Gentiles. He withdraws himself from table fellowship. He withdraws himself likely from participating in communion together with these non-Jewish sisters and brothers. The great apostle Peter. I mean, the man who had walked on water at one point when Jesus called him out of a boat. Kind of the apostle of the apostles and we see him here withdrawing now and undermining the truth of the gospel. Now, you need to understand that like circumcision, table fellowship was a very important identity marker for the Jewish people. The Old Testament had many ceremonial laws that Jews had to keep in order to be acceptable to go into the presence of God. Examples are staying away from unclean foods, um, not touching dead things, uh, not being sick yourself. You couldn't go and enter into God's presence if you had a disease. You needed to be cleansed first. You also couldn't touch somebody else who was sick with a disease or you would be ceremonially unclean, kind of like what we're going through right now. Like nobody can touch each other in the church right now or we'll kick you out. We'll literally kick you out. No, I'm just kidding. But you had to do these things to remain ceremonially clean and, and thus fit for the presence of God. Now, why would God have laws like this? Well, the reason that God had the Jews obey these ceremonial laws was to teach them something. To teach them that because of their sin, they were in need of cleansing before they would be acceptable and able to enter into God's presence. Again, because of their sin, they were cut off, they were polluted, 
And they needed cleansing before they could go into the presence of a holy God. So that's why these laws existed. But then comes Jesus. And Jesus comes and through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave, Jesus gives us complete cleansing, permanent cleansing. He gives us his righteousness so that now we can enter into the presence of a holy God. And so once Jesus comes on the scene, these ceremonial laws are obsolete. These don't matter anymore. We don't need these anymore. These things have gone away. Now, Peter knew this. If you go to Acts chapter 10, there's a famous story there where Peter goes and first preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. There's a man named Cornelius who's not Jewish, and he's a God-fearer, meaning that this man respected and honored the God of the Jewish people. And Cornelius gets this, this vision that there's a man named Peter down in a city called Joppa who needs to come and share an urgent message with Cornelius and his family. And so he dispatches some messengers to go find this guy Peter down in Joppa. Well, when the messengers arrive, they find Peter on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. I think it's kind of cool how at this time they would refer to people by their first name and their occupation. Like, he's over at Simon the Tanner's house. Like, do you want to go to Daniel the pastor's house for lunch today? That's kind of cool how they did that. But anyway, he's at Simon the Tanner's house. He's up on the roof and he's praying midday. And he has this vision. This is Peter, a man who was Jewish through and through. And he has this vision of this sheet coming down from heaven. And on the sheet are a combination of clean and unclean animals. And he hears this voice that says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, no way, Lord. I am a good Jew. I've never eaten anything unclean my entire life. And the Lord says to him something really profound. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Whoa, like crazy for a Jew to hear that food is no longer unclean. All of a sudden, the messengers from Cornelius are on the doorstep and they say, hey, we've got our, our master Cornelius. You, you have a message you're supposed to deliver it to him. And, and Peter connects the dots. He goes, oh my gosh, we've always considered the Gentiles unclean. We've always looked at them as common and God is saying, don't do that anymore. I'm bringing cleansing to the Gentiles. So he goes to Cornelius' house. He preaches the gospel. All these Gentiles get saved. They receive the Holy Spirit. Peter's fired up. He goes back to Jerusalem to tell his buddies in the church the amazing things that God has done. And you would expect that the church in Jerusalem would say to him, wow, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But instead their response is, wow, you ate with Jew or Gentiles? You, you, you had a meal with Gentiles? What's wrong with you, Peter? But in Acts chapter 11, verse 2, Peter defends his decision. He says, God has given me a vision. We can't treat Gentiles like this any longer. And he defends himself. But here in Antioch, Peter reverses course. He knew better. He knew the truth of the gospel. He knew that in Christ, these distinctions are gone. That Gentiles are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. That we're one new family, but he plays the hypocrite. Peter, like the ancient Greek actors, holds up a mask in front of his face and he pretends to agree with these Judaizers that have entered the church. Why does Peter do this? Well, the answer is in verse 12. He does this out of fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 reminds us, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. In that moment, when these guys that Peter probably knew since childhood, 
When they entered into the church at Antioch, he allowed his fear of man to loom larger in his mind than his fear of God. And he was more concerned about their opinions than God's opinion. We call this kind of fear peer pressure. And this reminds us of two different things. The first thing it reminds us of is the power of peer pressure. Notice first Peter gives in, Barnabas also gives in, and then all the rest of the Jews in the church at Antioch give in. I mean, it's contagious. Peer pressure is powerful. All of us know what it's like to give in to peer pressure. But the second thing that we see is the power of old identities. All of us, when we came to Christ, were given a brand new identity. You are now a child of God. You're a follower of Jesus. You are loved by your heavenly Father. But we came into that with some baggage, with some old identities that used to define us, that we used to live under. They could be identities that our culture places on us. It could have come from things that your parents taught you about yourself. It could come from things that other people have said to you. Maybe you were in an abusive relationship and you got all of these horrendous ideas about your worth and your identity and who you are. And even though you come to Christ, when we all come to Christ, even though we get this new identity, those old identities are strong, they're powerful, and they creep up at times and want to control our lives as Christians. Here's Peter, he knows the truth, he knows his new identity, and yet, when the circumstances are just right, he reverts back to his Jewishness. And all of a sudden, being Jewish is more important in this moment than his new identity, which is, I belong to Jesus. Romans 12, 2 tells us that we have to have our minds renewed as followers of Jesus Christ. These old identities are powerful. And Peter gives in. He yields to the peer pressure. And he plays the hypocrite. Now verse 14 shows us what's at stake. Paul writes here in verse 14, When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, then he rebukes Peter. What's at stake here during this moment of hypocrisy is nothing short than the truth of the gospel. Peter's separating himself from the Gentiles contradicts the truth of the gospel. Notice with me that the gospel impacts the way that we behave, the way that we live. Sometimes Christians wrongly think that the gospel is just a set of facts that are kind of out there that we just agree to intellectually. Okay, that's true, that's true, that's true, and that's true. Cool. I've got my ideas all lined up now. No, no, no. The gospel actually impacts the way that we live. The gospel shows us a brand new way of understanding the world understanding life, understanding eternity, and that shapes now the decisions that we make. And so Peter is not walking, he's not living in step with the truth of the gospel. His life is a contradiction. And so Peter, or Paul deals with it. Paul corrects him. And this is good. This is right for Paul to correct Peter. Now we live in A culture that permanently lives in a state of offense. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Just live and let live. Don't disagree with me. That's unloving. Listen, it's not unloving. When you come to somebody whose life, I mean the way that they live, 
contradicts their belief, the truth of the gospel, it is right and loving for you as a fellow member of the body of Christ to confront them and to correct them. Because the witness of Jesus Christ is at stake here and the good of your friend that you're correcting is at stake here. So Paul sees this contradiction. He sees this hypocrisy and he goes and he hits it head on. Now normally when we correct others, Matthew 18 teaches us you should go to that person privately. So if you see somebody contradicting the gospel in the way that they live, you don't just interrupt me while I'm preaching on Sunday morning and say, hey, hey, everybody, I want to let you know so-and-so gossiped about me. <laughs> we don't do it that way. But in this situation, Peter's sin had corporate consequences. Peter is a leader in the church, and he is leading the church into disunity and destruction. And so Paul needs to address this corporately for the sake of the entire church body. And then here's the million-dollar question that he asks Peter publicly at the end of verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's what he's saying. You're a Jew, but you've set aside the law of God, right? You are disregarding these ceremonial laws about food. So you're a Jew, you set aside God's law, then how in the world can you ask non-Jews to start living under the law? This doesn't make any sense, Peter. Why not? The answer is this. Because works of the law cannot justify anyone. This gets us to the solution to Peter's hypocrisy found in verses 15 and 16. If you're the type of person who's comfortable writing in your Bible, this would be a great spot to put a gigantic star next to verses 15 and 16. If you're uncomfortable, you could do it in your scripture journal that we provided for you. Because verses 15 and 16 are the, the centerpiece of the entire letter of Galatians. This is the big idea. It's the key passage. And what 15 and 16 teach us is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let me unpack this. Paul says to Peter, Peter, you and I are Jews, okay? Okay. We're Jews by birth, this is verse 15, we're not Gentile sinners. Translation, hey Peter, look at me buddy, you and I, you and I are part of God's covenant people. You and I have the law, you and I have the promises, we've got it all, we're not like the Gentiles, we belong to God's people and yet, despite all of that, you and I still need to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, just like the Gentiles. We're no different. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Peter, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he's saying, listen, despite being privileged in one sense, we're Jews. We belong to God's people. We have the law. We have the promises. Despite all of that, we are no better off than the Gentiles. And we have to get to God the same exact way as them, through faith in Jesus. It's been well said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no room for boasting. There's no pecking order. There's no, we're better than you are. 
The ground is completely level. We're all sinners, and in order for us to be right with God, we need a Savior. So for Peter to get all mean girls on the Gentiles and say, you can't sit with us. If you didn't know that reference, that's okay. For him to do this, though, it makes no sense, and it is a contradiction of the gospel. The law is not the way to God's presence, Paul is saying. So why on earth would you invite Gentiles to start living by the law? Notice that three times in this verse, three times, Paul denies that a person can be, a person can be justified by works of the law. Three times. The reason he has to do this is because humans are constantly tempted to add something to God's completed work of salvation. This is a deep-seated temptation. So it's Jesus plus Moses' law here in Galatians. Or it's Jesus plus the sacraments. Or it's Jesus plus baptism. Or it's Jesus plus good works. Or it's Jesus plus speaking in tongues or some other thing that you have got to do in order, excuse me, to actually be saved and in order to be acceptable in God's presence, in order to belong to the family of God. This is a constant threat to the truth of the gospel. And so Paul is saying unequivocally, you cannot get to God any other way except through faith in Jesus Christ justification to be declared righteous in God's courtroom is by faith alone and this excludes works of any kind now the next three verses are difficult and be and can be very confusing so I want you to just lean in for the next five minutes focus for the next five minutes in fact don't even blink for the next five minutes okay if your neighbor blinks I'm giving you permission to be a whistleblower and then we'll publicly rebuke them in front of the whole church okay Just kidding, we're not going to do that. But focus in, this can be a little bit confusing. Verse 17 is the rebuttal. Okay, so so Paul just unpacks the gospel. He handles the, the, the reason why Peter's actions are not in step with the gospel. And now Paul is anticipating the response of the circumcision party. What are they going to say in response to this? Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So the thinking goes like this. If Jewish Christians, because of the, Jewish Christians like Paul and Peter, because of their faith in Jesus the Messiah, start neglecting the ceremonial law, then hasn't Jesus led them into sin, into violation of the very law of God? Do you see what he's saying? If these Jewish Christians start neglecting portions of God's law because of their faith in Jesus, then isn't Jesus the one who has led them to start violating God's law spelled out in the Torah? This is the accusation. What's Paul's response at the end of 17? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, in verse 18, as he gets into his response here, He's going to say that it's actually the other way around. That's not the way to become a sinner. You want to transgress the will of God? Rebuild the law. That's verse 18, and and it begins his response through the rest of this paragraph. Here's what he says in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be 
a transgressor. He says, no, 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 no. It's not by following Jesus and dismissing the ceremonial law that I prove myself to be a sinner. If I go back and I try to rebuild that law, if I go try to rebuild these distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, then I would prove myself to be going against the will of God. What does he mean? Then I would prove myself to be going against what God is now doing in Christ. It would be a fundamental misunderstanding of what God is actually doing in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's Galatians 3, 23 through 29. So Paul's gonna develop this later. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, here's the key. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You could also see Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 19. Paul unpacks the same argument. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, Now that Christ has come, these things are gone. We are not under that law anymore. We are under faith in Jesus Christ. So if I were to rebuild that old system like Peter's trying to do, then I would be violating what God is now doing through Christ. I can't revert back. We're going the wrong way in salvation history if I go back. And not only that, he can't revert back to the law because it could never give him life That's what he says in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Before Jesus got a hold of Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul was living his life through the law. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He he was meticulous in these distinctions, the nitty-gritty of the law. He would never, never, have commingled with the Gentiles like this. And what he found is living that way didn't make him right with God. Rather, what he found was living that way actually made him an enemy of God. When Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, he shocked Peter because he explained to Peter that you are persecuting me. What you're doing by trying to maintain those distinctions and continue propagating the old, the old system is you are opposing what God is doing in me. And so Jesus shows him that that's not the way to get right with God. The way to get right with God is through me, through my work, God's Messiah. And that day Paul died to the law. That day, Paul died to trying to relate to God under that old system. From that day forward, he actually began living for God for the first time. And what does it look like to live for God? Well, the very obvious Jewish answer would be follow the Torah. Okay, what does it look like to live for God? Follow Torah. But the Christian answer is what does it look like to live for God? Faith in Jesus Christ. This brings us to verse 20. This is a coffee cup verse. This is the verse we put on 
a plaque or something on our wall. This is one of those verses, and for good reason. This is an amazing verse. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beautiful. The people of God have a brand new identity since Jesus came. It's not about being Jewish. The people of God belong to Jesus. It's about being in Christ. This is a favorite Pauline expression. Being in Christ, and he says, and having Christ in you. Speaks of the doctrine of union with Christ, meaning that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit mysteriously brings you into Christ and Christ in you as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. We are in him. We're one with him. We're in Christ. Because of that, Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, Christ had already been crucified decades before. But Paul understood that through faith, again, he is now in Christ. He's unified to Christ, meaning that his sins were actually really, fully, totally dealt with at Calvary when Jesus died. Because by virtue of his faith, he was carried in Christ on the cross so that when Jesus died on the cross, it was as if Paul had actually experienced the real penalty for every sin he had ever committed. He's in Christ. He's crucified with Christ. His sins were truly paid for at Calvary. And the same is true for you if you've put your faith in Jesus. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because Christ is in you. His resurrection life is active in you. Now this is not speaking of the destruction of your personality like you come to Christ and you stop being you or something and all of a sudden you become a new robot that follows Jesus around. It's not talking about that. When he says it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, what he's talking about is that at the point you become a Christian, you start living your life dominated by the Spirit rather than being dominated by the flesh. He's going to talk about this more in chapter 5. But again, he's saying Christ is in you. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Check out Galatians 3.14. So that in Christ Jesus, so he's talking about union with Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So when you put your faith in Jesus, again, the Spirit comes to you and lives inside of you. And this is so amazing. Because this brand new identity, this union that we have in Christ means this. It means that you, friend, possess what Torah could never give to you. You possess righteousness with God. And you possess the power to actually obey the law. The Holy Spirit is in you. Christ's resurrection power is in you enabling you to obey the law, not out of slavish fear of judgment, but out of the solid foundation, the secure foundation of being fully accepted and loved in Christ. This is beautiful. So what does this look like practically as we bring this message to a close? 
Well, Paul helps us to see, although that you and I still live in the flesh, meaning these human bodies, okay, these bodily limitations. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, so we don't just come to Jesus and all of a sudden start floating around like angels. We still live in these bodies. We still have these limitations. Although that's true, he says, we live by faith in the Son of God. So let's connect this. In verse 19, he talks about living to God. Now we see that what Paul has in mind there when he says now he's living to God is actually to live by faith in the realm of the Spirit, not living by Torah in the realm of the flesh. This is the transition that has happened in salvation history because Christ came. Now we are living by faith in Christ, empowered and indwelt by the Spirit. We're not living under Torah, trying to obey it in the power of the flesh. The Christian life from beginning to end is one of growing practically in trusting Jesus. Sometimes we talk about trusting Jesus as just something non-believers need to do. You need to trust Jesus and get saved. No, 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 family, the entire Christian life is about growing in our trust in Jesus. Yes, the moment you first put your trust in Jesus, you are saved. But we have to continually grow in trusting him more and more every single day of our life. This is what growth, sanctification, this is what this looks like. And here's the key at the end of verse 20 is that our trust deepens the more and more we grasp God's love for us. Our trust deepens as we more fully grasp his love for us. I mean, just stop for a second and just think about human relationships. Isn't that true? The, the more that you come to understand that that other person loves you, the more fully you grasp that, the more readily you trust that person. Right? Because you know, at the end of the day, that person's heart is for me. He loves me. He's committed to me. She loves me. She's committed to me. And you, you readily trust that person. Until you grasp at the level of your heart that Jesus Christ died not just for the world, not just even for the church, but that Jesus Christ loved you and died for you personally, individually, you will never move forward in your relationship with God. Period. This can't just be about, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. That's true. But again, until you get to the point that you can personalize this like Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and understand that Jesus loved me. He loved Daniel Hooper. He died on the cross for me. Until that gets into your heart, you're never going to move forward in your walk with Jesus Christ. He loved you. He died for you. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul could gladly offer the rest of his life to Jesus because he knew that Jesus gladly offered his life for Paul. You got to get that. This is what we call grace-motivated obedience. We don't have time for that. <laughs> it's this unshakable foundation. The love of Christ for me. The love of Christ for for you put on full display at Calvary 2,000 years ago that our entire identity and the entire Christian life 
is built on. So in verse 21, Paul ties it all up in this section. He says, if you though, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong verse. He says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Unlike these Judaizers, Paul is not going to minimize the grace of God. On the contrary, it would be through returning to the law that God's grace would be rendered meaningless. Because if we return to the law, it means that Jesus' death did nothing. It was, it was completely unnecessary. So the message here in Galatians chapter 2 for us is this. The days of rule-keeping to live for God are over. Torah is great. Torah is from God. But its purpose was not to rule over God's family forever. Its purpose was to prepare us for God's appointed Savior, Jesus the Christ, who would justify us before God so that when we stand before God, we are declared righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his righteousness that becomes ours by faith. And Jesus would give us the Holy Spirit who would write the law on our hearts and empower us to actually obey it. It's this gospel that we have got to live in step with. To look to Torah or to look to any other works to belong to the people of God is a deviation from the will of God and it leads to complete destruction. So we can never be reminded enough. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. This is exactly what it is. It's not a list of to-dos. It's not a list of rules. It's an announcement. It's a declaration of good news that has been accomplished for us through the work of Jesus the Christ 2,000 years ago. And so this morning, as we once again are reminded of this good news, we rejoice, we celebrate, and we give you the glory and the praise that is due to you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Jesus, thank you that you loved me and that you died for me. Lord, I pray that that reality in each of our hearts would motivate us, that it would drive us, and that it would govern the way that we live our lives. Even in this specific example, in Galatians chapter 2, we see the resurrection in Peter's heart of old identities and we see a willingness to treat other people who are different ethnically as being inferior. Lord, what a great reminder for us in this cultural moment. None of those things matter. Race, ethnicity, none of them matter in a person's ability to be justified in your presence or to be fully accepted in the people of God. Rather than counting against one another, our differences are meant to be celebrated by one another, honored by one another, and we're meant to be unified together as one brand new family made up of so many different peoples who are saved the exact same way so that we might give testimony to the gospel of grace for all peoples. Lord, work these truths into our lives. Help us to grow this week in our trust in Jesus our perfect and complete Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Amen. Let's worship, family.